turn to John chapter 20. Tell you what, it is great to see all of you here uh, this Easter morning. Now, if you are a parent, you know that your kids ask you questions, and then they, we actually have a study now that has found that most kids ask their mothers questions. And so, of course, you know that you're asked a lot of questions, but now there's been a study. There's this online real t- retailer called Littlewoods, and last year they did a study, they published the results to find out how many questions are these little people asking their parents, specifically their questions. Now, moms, how many questions do you think, if you got a little kid, they're asking you a day? Okay, some of you might need to pull out your calculator, do some quick calculations. Let me just tell you, from the results from this study, it just blew me away, that on average, a mother is asked by just even one of their children 288 questions a day. Whoa, okay? And now, if you got a little girl at age four, the average goes up. That, is, that average is 390 questions a day. Okay, so, I mean, that's, if you look at that, for their waking time, that is a question every one minute and 56 seconds that you're being asked. So moms, if you feel totally wiped out, I want to know that one of the biggest reasons why is because you're like an online full-time mommypedia, okay? All right, they're just firing questions at you all the time. Who needs Siri, right, when you got mommy, all right? And that's what's going on. Now, as the kids get older, they start to ask less questions, but they start to ask more difficult questions, okay? And every parent has had the wonderful experience of their kids going, hey, where do babies come from? I'm like, ha ha, glad you asked. I'm like, look, what's that over there? And next thing you know, you're like, we'll, we'll have another time and for this conversation. And then, of course, you got kids, you start thinking, they're listening to everything you say and do, and they're like, what's up with this, this song that you sing about this rockabye baby, it's, it's talking about sticking a baby in a tree in a cradle and hoping the wind comes and crashes down. Why would you sing that? That doesn't make any sense. And you're like, uh, don't ask questions like that. You know, it's worked for thousands of years. It'll be fine. Just go to sleep, right? And then, of course, if you've got a kid that's really sharp and they're really processing life, uh, they'll ask this question. Hey, do vegetarians, do they eat animal crackers? And you're like... If you need the answer to that question, the answer to that question is yes, but they do it with their eyes closed, okay? All right. You know, we, we get asked lots of questions, right? And some questions that we ask and answer actually have a profound influence on our life, like, should I or will I or whom will I marry? Or what am I to do with my life? Or why am I here? You ask those questions, you answer them, they're going to have a profound influence on your life. And there is one question that we could call the ultimate question. In fact, it is the reason that we've gathered here this morning. There is the ultimate question of life that affects not only this life in dramatic ways, but has serious implications for the life to come. And that question, the ultimate question, was actually asked by a Roman governor. Uh, His name is Pontius Pilate. He ruled the southern part of Israel called Judea from A.D. 26. He had about a 10-year reign. And he was the one that presented the ultimate question in life. Now, let me just kind of give you a little background as to the setting of when he actually asked the ultimate question. It was about 5 a.m. when he was suddenly awoken. It was on the Friday of Passover. There had been all these sort of commotion that uh, he was probably maybe had some awareness to, maybe not. But the night before, they had actually, the temple guard and some of the high priests and the Jewish leadership had arrested Jesus. 
And that night, all night, they put him through some mock trials, and they kind of abused him uh, emotionally, verbally, and even physically. And they wanted to get rid of Jesus because Jesus was creating quite a stir. Not only had he made this triumphant entry a week before, and people are calling out Hosanna, son of David, calling him the Messiah, but there had been word about Jesus and these miracles, and some were calling him, he was the promised Messiah, and others were calling him a prophet. And they wanted to get rid of him once for all because he was creating problems for them. They, they were going to lose their established place in the, among the Israel if people would continue to follow this Jesus as, as Messiah. And so they had arrested him, they had put him through some mock trials, and they wanted to get it done quick and early in the morning. And so it's about 5 a.m., they, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, these 71 leaders, Roman soldiers, they actually are bringing Jesus to the home of Pontius Pilate. It was called the Praetorium. Not only lived there, but this is also where he actually would judge cases. They brought him to him early because they wanted to be done with it. And this is the charge. This Jesus is a revolutionary, and what he's trying to do is create the overthrow of Rome. And as the Romans would have it, they would want no insurrectionists. They'd want to put a quick end to anybody that actually even thought about raising a hand against Rome. And they did. And so they thought, this is going to be a quick sell to Pilate. He's going to be bothered. We woke him up early. He's going to want to be done with it so he can get back to bed. And he'll quickly dismiss him. Now, as you need to understand what's taking place here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city of about 40,000 people, but at, at uh, Passover, it would swell to about six times the size. And with the ruling body hauling is Jesus, and you've got these Roman soldiers, word would quickly spread, and people would be woken up. Hey, they're taking Jesus. He's bound. He, he looks kind of beat up a little bit. They're, they're taking him to Pilate, and the crowd would gather. And so they did. And the, and the Jewish leadership was rather effective in actually poisoning the crowd to ask to actually see Jesus be done away with and crucified. Now, there's something else you need to know about the Passover, is that at the Passover, the Romans would allow the Jewish people to pick one person whom they could actually bring out of prison and actually kind of reclaim. And so they had convinced the crowd that we want this notorious prisoner, Barabbas, released. And so they're standing here. You can see the scene. They've got Jesus and Pilate has got him, he's examined him, can find nothing wrong with him. If, if Jesus was an insurrectionist and trying to overthrow Rome, let me assure you, he would have known about Jesus and actually had dealt with him a long time ago. He had heard about him, and now he sees him, and he knows that these claims are not true. He can smell their hypocrisy a mile away. And so it is in this scene that Pilate asks the ultimate question. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 22, it's recorded, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What do you want me to do with Jesus? There's nothing wrong with him. He's completely innocent of the charges that you are making claim to. And they kept rallying, crucify him. And he's like, why? What evil has he done? But he sees that he's accomplishing nothing. In fact, he's losing control of the situation. The Sanhedrin is whipping the crowd into a frenzy. And have you ever been to like a football game where you just start calling defense, defense. I know some of you have been doing it. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, you're probably leading the charge. And you get a whole stadium just defense, right? And it kind of sounds deafening. Well, they had the crowd crying, crucify him, crucify him. And so after a series of events, that's what Pilate actually does. He allows Jesus and gives him the sentence to be crucified because he is the king of the Jews. But why? Why did Jesus 
actually go through with this? I mean, this is the same guy who had made the lame to walk. He had healed people that were blind. Can you imagine? Blind, now seeing. Cured lepers. Uh, healed people, a variety of different diseases. Cast out demons. On three different occasions, he actually raised someone from the dead. They had been dead. One of them was at a funeral procession. How is it that he couldn't just say, game over, we're, we're not going through with this? Why allow yourself to go through these mock trials? Why allow yourself to be scourged? You know, they beat you beyond recognition. They were, they were really good at it to keep you barely alive. Why allow yourself to be crucified on a cross? I mean, Jesus himself had actually said, remember when he was being apprehended? He told his disciples, don't you think that at any time I can appeal to my father and he'll put at my disposal, he said, 12 legions, okay? And a legion was 6,000 soldiers. He says, 12 legions of angels. That'd be like 72,000 angels, mighty, powerful. At any time, I can beckon them and they will respond. Why did he go through all this? Please never think that Jesus is a victim. No, he's a victor. He came to accomplish this. Paul wrote about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when he says, It is just trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came for this explicit purpose, to live a perfect and righteous life, to actually die on a cross to take God's just wrath against sin in his body, pay for our sins so that we, the guilty one, can receive the righteousness of Christ, and Christ, the righteous one, will actually take his sins in his body on our behalf. That's why he came. And to authenticate to the world that indeed he is the Messiah and can forgive sins, he rose again on the third day. Now, What you do with Jesus is going to determine the outcome of your life both now and for eternity. And so I'd like to ask you the ultimate question. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? Now let me give you the three most common responses to a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. The first one is denial. Absolutely, like, I don't want anything to do it. Flat out refuse Christ. And denial generally comes in two flavors. You've got the irate denial, you know, just vicious, mad. It's what you see with the crowd that are actually calling crucify him, okay? Um, I saw this uh, on a college campus when I was at the University of Oregon. You've perhaps maybe seen it at college campuses. People that, that are just outright, viciously mad, angry, and despise Jesus. I saw it when they were showing this film of Jesus' life and his, his death and his resurrection, and at the scene where they're beating Jesus, I saw college students actually cheer for the Romans, like beat him again. And when they nailed him on the cross, saying, nail him. I saw that. Maybe you've seen things like that. Maybe there are certain Hollywood stars or even movies that, that make an absolute mockery of the whole Jesus and crucified, resurrected. There are certain places in this world, countries, that if you should say that You're a follower of Jesus. That is like putting a death sentence upon you. And in one country in particular, North Korea, it is to put a death sentence on you and your extended family as far back as they could get them. So you got denial that comes in irate behavior. But you 
A big part of denial, another major flavor you might find, is just kind of total indifference. Like, I could care less. It's like when you read the newspaper and you see all those ads, like, eh, whatever. You read an article, like, doesn't matter to you. There's a lot of people that are completely indifferent to Jesus. Could, could, it makes no difference whatsoever. That is a common response. Let me give you a second common response to Jesus, him being crucified and resurrected. And that is doubt. To, uh, I'm not really sure about that. I don't, I don't think so. Can't really go there. In fact, one of Jesus' key men, a, a man that Jesus personally selected, he became known as Doubting Thomas. Now, I'd, I'd like to say that uh, that's probably not a very fitting label for him. If you look at Thomas, when you see him portrayed in the Gospels, this is a guy of real courage. Like, for instance, in John chapter 11, verse 16, he makes this statement when Jesus says, I am going down to Judea. I know they want to kill me down there, but I'm going. Thomas is the one that said, let us go with him and die with him. Okay? This is not a wimp. This is a guy who's got courage. He seems to be strongly attached to Jesus, and he's willing to die for him. You also find that he's a very spiritually-minded person. He asks extremely good questions. In John 14, he's the one who's asking Jesus good, deep, penetrating questions. So we find when you look at Thomas here, Thomas, though he's gone down in history as doubting Thomas, I think you're finding a guy who really loved Jesus deeply. But when you come to the apprehension, the mock trials, the beating, the crucifixion, all of that, that, that became too much for Jesus and that, for Thomas, and that Jesus actually died. That, that to him was more than he could handle. And yet matters were going to become worse for Thomas. Look at this, John chapter 20, look at verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, this Sunday, this first Sunday after this Passover where Jesus had been crucified, when the doors were shut, literally meaning they were locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. I mean, can you imagine? This is the the first day of the week, this Sunday. This is actually the fifth time Jesus has made an appearance on this first Easter, this Resurrection Sunday. This he had actually appeared to Mary Magdalene, then to both Marys. There was uh, Peter that he appeared to. Then you have the disciples who are making their way to Emmaus. This is now the fifth time that Jesus makes an appearance. They're, you notice where they're at. They're in a house. The doors are locked. They are absolutely fearful because they believe they are next. I mean, think about it. If Rome is going to deal with Jesus, that's it. No more Messiah. And anybody that's in league with him, you know how you put an end to this movement. You know how you do it. You kill them all, and you do it in a very public fashion. And they are very fearful that the temple police are going to find them, and they are next. They're in no position to be like kind of hallucinating or just imagining they've seen the resurrected Jesus. They are absolutely fearful. And then all of a sudden, he comes through their doors. Jesus has a body that is now fit for eternity. It's, you know, like decay and decomposition has been arrested. Now he has a body that is immortal, where he actually walks through this locked door and he appears to them. Can't you actually? I mean, they've heard these reports, but now in the evening, he stands before them and he says these words, peace be with you. He gives them peace because now peace has been truly established. Remember when he was on the cross and when all was said and done after he had fully experienced God's wrath and judgment against sin, 
He said, Tetelestai, John 19.30, it is finished. And when he had said this, verse 20, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I mean, he's actually having them touch him. And they're like, whoa, you're, you're alive. And Jesus had made multiple times predictions. He said, listen, they are going to kill me. They're going to abuse me. They're going to spit on me. But I'm coming back and I will come back from the dead. But now they're seeing him. And it's just, it's beyond their explanation. They're just rejoicing. And then he says this in verse 21. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you. You get the idea that they're completely unraveled and unsettled. And then he commissions them. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I'm appearing to you because I'm sending you. I'm commissioning you. And verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I want you to see a few things. First of all, notice how the Trinity is actually on full display in those two verses. The Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then after he officially commissions them, he actually then ceremonially empowers them. He says, receive, it's a command, receive the Holy Spirit. And he had told them before, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. And then you are going to fulfill my mission. So he commissions them and he gives them this command. And really, this is like a picture of these Old Testament prophets. They would do this imagery thing. And Jesus, when he breathes on them, he's saying, I want you to receive the Spirit of God when it comes, for you will be empowered. And that's exactly what happens. They actually find it in the book of Acts after, in about 40 days, they are going to receive the Spirit of God. And then notice what else he says. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And what he says is, I am giving you the ability to announce on heaven's terms whether someone is truly forgiven or not. They don't have the power, like, you just pick and choose, like, you're forgiven and you're not. And you're forgiven? No. They have the power on the basis of the authority that if you believe that Jesus has been crucified for your sins and has risen again, your sins are forgiven. And if you reject that message, you will not have it. Your sins still remain. You're going to face God on the basis of your own merits when you could have it on the basis of the merits and the finished work of Christ. Well, that's is all taking place, but it's very interesting. Our guy Thomas isn't there. In fact, look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, and that word means twin, he was a, a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So you've got to get a, imagine this. What does it look like when Thomas, maybe he's so overcome with grief, he doesn't even want to be around people and talk to people. You ever been like that? Well, now he shows up, and he's expecting to find these guys all huddled in and scared quite the opposite. Verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas was like, what? What? And they're trying to tell him like, yeah, we, we touched, we put our fingers in the hole in his hands, in those wrists. You know, remember that? You know where he's lanced with a, a spear? Remember in John 19 where there was a soldier just to confirm that he's dead? He takes his spear while Christ is still on the cross and he lances his side. Now comes blood and water, which is a medical sign of death. And he said, we touched that. Weasel, he's alive. He's appeared to us. And Thomas is trying to take this all in, but he simply is not going to have his heart crushed again. He's not going to have his hopes brought up to be dashed again. And he said to them, look at verse 25, unless, 
I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There, he said it. I, it's, I, I, I can't go there. I, I will not believe. It's like he took a stake and he drove it into the ground and that stake is holding a balloon on a string and it's just whipping in the wind, but he has put a stake in the ground. He says, I simply will not believe. And it is that remark where he gets kind of labeled Doubting Thomas. Now, it's probably unfair. Actually, none of the disciples believed the initial reports that Jesus was risen from the grave. They all could have been put in the category of great doubters. Now, when it comes to doubt, the spectrum of doubt has a pretty wide range. You've got folks that are, you know, really seeking. They're still doubting, but they're really seeking. And you've got folks that are really skeptical, like, uh, I'm not sure about that. And you may be wrestling with doubts. That would not be uncommon because it is a major category of people that they doubt whether Jesus really rose from the grave. You may have been coming to church or go to a church. Uh, your parents may have been believers in Jesus and they really believe that he was resurrected. But, but do you? Do you really believe and know that he has risen from the dead? Now, if you're wrestling with those questions, I, I want to tell you something. Doubt is often the first step to the road to belief. When I was in college back at the University of Oregon, I, uh, I was filled with serious doubt. I really wanted to know, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Now, it's no question, Jesus is a historical figure. You can't like, well, he never showed up. Now, everybody, there's other historians that have nothing to do with be believers in Jesus that wrote of his, his time on this earth. And it's even recorded that he rose again and he'd made these appearances. But I really wanted to know, did he really rise? Because if he did, that would change everything for me. That would demand really the loyalty of my life. If he rose from the grave, there are huge implications for my life. And if he didn't, I am not going to play religion. I, that means I can pick and choose and do whatever I want. If he really didn't rise from the grave, you just got a lot of folks that are playing church, and I'm not interested. It all comes down, did he really rise? And I want you to also know that um, God isn't afraid of your doubts. You don't have questions that he's like, oh, man, I really wish you wouldn't ask that because there's no real good answer to that. Rather, you might want to think of it this way. He knows that easily developed loyalties often lack staying power. In fact, you actually wrestling through your doubts and intellectually exploring them may very well lead you to a person that has depth in your real faith with Christ. Now, why, why was Thomas not there? I mean, Jesus actually seemed to pick and choose all the places where he'd made his appearance. Why didn't he just wait till Thomas came back from whatever he was doing? Why did Jesus appear when Thomas wasn't there? And I'll tell you why. I really believe the reason he, was, he came when Thomas wasn't there is to once for all deal with the issue that people who have real doubts. He wanted to give a real illustration of someone who really doubted, and hence we have Thomas. He literally said, I will never believe. Well, we see the scene where he's waiting. In fact, we find out that he had actually been waiting a whole week. Look at verse 26. It says, 
Now, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them, okay? I mean, pretty interesting. Thomas is, Thomas is with them. He refuses to believe. They keep trying to convince him. They spend a whole week. The dynamics of the group were pretty interesting. They didn't tell him, you need to get out of here, and Thomas still hung with the group, okay? And so here we are. He's, he's wrestling with all these issues, but I want you to see that Jesus can take someone from doubt, and move them to deep devotion. Look at this. So they're with together for these eight days, from one Sunday to the next Sunday, because they counted the day that it started. And Jesus came, verse 26, the doors having been shut. Again, they're locked. They're still fearful. And stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. That same peace that he had actually extended to him, now he actually offers it again. And who's with him this time? Thomas. Could you imagine if you were Thomas? And you're just like, you would just completely be unraveled. I don't even know if you could stand because now you actually see him and he is there. And the other is like, see, we told you. And, he, and Thomas then is approached by Jesus and look what he, he does. Not only does he extend peace, then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. I want you to see it. And reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas does not get the, the cold shoulder from Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at him like, you should have known better. Why didn't you believe? What's wrong with you? He doesn't come down. Him. In fact, Jesus is so very gracious with Thomas. I mean, it's, it's astounding. And that is how he is. He, he actually meets us where we're at. He is not afraid of our pessimism. He knows our hearts and the instability that reside there. And he actually shows Thomas, and perhaps he even takes his hand. Here, I know that you can't even do this. And he takes his hand right here, and he touches him. And, and he opens up his side here. He says, put your hand right in there. And I want you to see how Thomas responded. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. You know when you really believe, when you say to Jesus, the resurrected one, my Lord and my God. It's interesting. Jesus knew all about Thomas's statement, even though he wasn't physically there. That's because he is all-knowing. And even if you don't see him, he knows and he hears and he sees and understands. That's why he invites Thomas to do exactly what he does. That's exactly what Thomas had asked for. And Thomas responds with worship. If Jesus was not God, and there are cults that say, well, Jesus wasn't God, Jesus would have declined worship. No, 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 you got this wrong. Absolutely right. He is the Lord, and he receives worship. And Jesus then, looking ahead to the time when physical evidence would no longer be possible, when he was no longer going to be making physical appearances, he says this in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You see, he approaches Thomas and he meets him right where he's at. Now, let me ask you, how is Thomas really rescued and saved from his sins? Is he saved because he sees? Actually, that's not right. He is saved and rescued from his sins because he believes. 
It is belief. In fact, almost 100 times in the Gospel of John, it is emphasized, believe, believe, believe. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. That's you and I. You're not going to see the miracles of Jesus when he walked on this earth. You're not going to see the resurrected Lord. Everything you have, he has given in his word, and he says, believe. In fact, look at how he ends this this chapter, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is the word for Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's not saved by seeing. He's saved by believing just like you and I. And I want you to know for Thomas, his life was revolutionized by faith, by believing. Just like all of the other apostles and the disciples, just like Jesus promised when he said, receive the Holy Spirit, so they did. And at Pentecost, they're actually filled with the Spirit of God. And their lives look radically different than cowards and running away and and not staying by. Now they've got a power and there's a vitality to their life because they're now united with a resurrected Christ. There is strength. There is vigor. They cannot deny what they have seen. They believe. And you see them out bringing the gospel to those, the good news that Jesus has paid for the sins and he's resurrected from the dead. And for Thomas, church history holds that Thomas takes the gospel all the way to India. In fact, you can go to India today, and there are seven churches that all find their origins in Thomas' ministry among them. In fact, here's the very first one, the first church ever planted in India, Polymer, and they trace their origins back to the gospel proclamation of Thomas when he brings the good news regarding Jesus and his resurrection. And you need to know this about Thomas. While he is in India, he is confronted and he is, they put him in a situation where they are forcing him to deny his faith and to put an end to this idea, these people believing in this resurrected Jesus. And Thomas simply refuses. He says, I cannot. And so they take their spears and they run it through him and they kill him and he dies a martyr. In fact, his grave is found on a small hill outside the airport of Chennai. And you only will die for something you really know and believe. And that was Thomas. Now, I want you to know that God may not give you what you want. Maybe you're here with your doubts, and you're like, well, I want, I want God to do this, and you kind of put it out there. I want to tell you this. He may not give you what you want, but he will give you what you need. What is it that we need? And he gives it to us. Well, I'll tell you, there's some great rep- implications of the resurrection. I'll just tell you some things. Because of the resurrection, the reality of Christ's deity is verified. Do you want proof that Jesus is really God? Because you, you only ought to worship God. Is he God? Well, he rose from the grave, and he authenticated to the world, I am him. He also releases us from our sins completely. He completely does that. I was reading of one psychiatrist, and she said that I could dismiss half of my patients if they really believed they were forgiven of their sins. Do you know who provides forgiveness? Jesus does. He accomplishes it through his finished work on the cross. Nobody is free who is unforgiven. And all of us, we've got issues, don't we? I know that you're all dressed up. You look real nice. But if we could see the interior of your heart and your experiences and things that you've said and done with your life, with your words, with your attitudes, and with your bodies, every one of us knows that we have lived self-centered and apart from God. 
But Jesus provides forgiveness for it because you know why? He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Do you want forgiveness of sins? Let me tell you, you find it. You find it in Jesus, the resurrected one. He is also the one that made relationship with God possible. He provides it. Jesus said, I am the way, exclusive, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I know there's a lot of religious routes. Jesus says, if you want real relationship with God, it's found in me. And the resurrection proves that that is a true statement. And let me tell you something else. That means that regeneration or resurrection resurrection from the dead is secured. One day, we too will receive resurrected bodies that will be fit for eternity like Jesus so that we'll spend eternity in the joy and the worship and the wonder of being with the living God. Now, God may not give us what we want, but he will give us what we need. And everything you need to believe, you've got. He has given you the truth of God's word. It's right here, just as he has intended. He has also given you the testimony of those who have believed. You've encountered other Christians in your life. You may try to suppress the truth about God, but he's provided everything that you need, and you've heard it. Now, I'll, find, I'll tell you that people that doubt, sometimes they're very respectful about Jesus. They'll never talk bad about him. In fact, they're pretty happy that Jesus seems to be bringing fulfillment in different people's lives. They don't, they don't have a problem with that. They might even find that they themselves, when going gets really tough, they're going to call out to God and pray and ask Jesus to help them. But they're very conditional. They want, they want Jesus on their terms. God says, I'll not have it. You must come on my terms. You got the evidence of scripture, the evidence of the testimony of people's lives. And let me tell you something else. You've got time now. God has given you an opportunity. I don't know how you got here. I don't know who's been talking with you. But right now, God is giving you an opportunity to truly trust in him, the resurrected one. Well, I just want to ask you, so what are you going to do with Jesus? I know you've got some big plans for today. Everybody's thinking about some meals and hiding Easter eggs and eating more chocolate than you can think. But I want you to answer that question before you walk through those doors. What are you going to do with Jesus? Is it going to be denial, doubt, or devotion? You've got my life and my heart. I, I trust in you. Years ago, I had uh, cut my thumb, kind of a crazy little deal. Finally got an opportunity to wash it out. I didn't think big deal. I mean, you cut yourself all the time, right? Well, something happened. I don't know. I mean, I didn't wash it out very good, but my thumb was kind of turning a little red, and it was sore, okay? And, and it went, actually, it started affecting my hand. I was like, this can't be good, but, you know, it'll go away, right? Eh, not so much. And uh, next it, it is uh, my arm. I would see, in fact, I could see some red stuff in my arm, and it came to a point. This will help you out and understand just how smart I am. I couldn't actually lift my arm over my head, okay? And then there was the night where I was really cold, but I was sweating, and Karina informed me, you were going to the doctor, okay? And so I decided I'd go and check and see how he was doing, okay? It had been a while since I'd seen him. And I make the appearance, and I, I go over, actually went over to his house there, because obviously Karina thought it was pretty urgent there, and he's like, oh, man, yeah, you certainly got a pretty serious infection. He goes, man, this is, you know what? A hundred years ago, people would lose their thumb, their hand, their arm. You could even lose your life from an infection like this. And I was feeling really smart at that point, you know? He says, but here, take this. And he gave me some antibiotics, man. You take this, and you're going to be fine. Now, I had an option at that point. I could have said, yeah, I don't know about that, you know? I think I'll see how things work out, and I'll go my outright. Yeah, I'm seeing some evidence that I got some issues, no doubt there, but I think I'll try it on my own. 
That would have been what? That would have been actually foolish, right? No, I, I want you to know that I got it figured out at that point, and I said, yes, sir. And I took that, and guess what? Those antibiotics, they actually worked. And there is faith, faith in trusting what the doctor had said to take the antibiotics for the issues that I have. There is a faith to come to trust in Jesus to address the issues of sin in your life. Far worse than you, like, losing a hand or something like that. Don't you see the corruption that's going on in your heart? Don't you see the relationships are severed where you're kind of not the person that you want to be? There's just this ongoing nagging issues in your life. You don't have hope. You oftentimes have a lack of peace. You might feel very depressed. Your relationships are broken down. You don't have that spiritual life that you'd want, but you don't have it. And you feel like you're kind of going alone. Let me tell you where it's found. It's found in Jesus, the resurrected one. And all you were asked to do is believe. You turn from your sin and your self-centeredness and you trust in him. Like it says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death. You know what death is? Separation. And the wages of your sin, my sin, equals spiritual separation from God with the free gift, very costly to Christ, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I want you to know this, that God continues to take people from denial and doubt and to bring them to become fully devoted followers of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas is just the first doubter to become like millions, hundreds of millions of others who really believe and receive the gift of knowing Christ and living with him forever. And you remember those guys that were yelling, crucify him? Well, all you have to do is turn a couple pages and you come to the book of Acts. And just a short period of time later, about 40 days, Peter, no longer hiding behind a couch, preaches a message under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. And you know what? 3,000 people turn from denial and doubt and place their faith in Christ. And so I just want to ask you, what will it be for you? What will you do with Jesus? And I would plead with you and invite you. Trust in him who is the resurrected one, and you will have life with God forever. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. And Father, you know if we have come here today, and we have never believed, but now you've got our full attention, and we see it. And I just invite you, if you've never trusted Christ, to just pray with me and say, Lord, I get it. I I see my sin and my self-centeredness, and I turn from my sin, and I trust Jesus as the crucified Messiah who has risen again on my behalf so I can have forgiveness of sins and life with you. I believe. I believe. And for all of us who have placed our faith in you, Would you fill us with the joy of knowing the resurrected Son? May we live in the victory of who he is, that he is alive. And we worship you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.